0: Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu slash join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or IntegrityFirstInsuranceServices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region. Working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking about the future of college athletics with new conference uh, additions and name, image, and likeness in particular. Those are the two topics that we're going to focus on today. We're going to cover these topics and more with our guests. We have Galen Clavio, who is the director of IU's sports media program. Jeremy Gray, who is the Senior Associate Athletic Director for Indiana University. And Andy Graham is with us. Andy is a former sports writer and reporter for the Herald Times and a member of the Indiana Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. If you have questions or comments, you can send them to us at org. You can also join us on the air by calling 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. Well, thanks for being here. It's great to have all you guys with us today to talk about what's going on in the world of college sports. Jeremy Gray, I need to welcome you on as the new voice of the Hoosiers, the yeah. new Chuck Crabb. So Jeremy's got that role now, too. But, but Jeremy, in your role as Senior Associate Athletic Director, can you talk about you know the new um, improved some would say big Ten and how it's going to look in I guess it's 2024 with the addition of USC and UCLA?
2: Well one, we are extraordinarily excited to mm-hmm. have uh, two universities of the stature of USC and UCLA as well as two of and arguably the two greatest athletic departments in the history of intercollegiate athletics joining, uh, our conference, uh, and for, for a variety of reasons. Um, you, you know, the, uh, the, the most talked about obviously is the financial stability that will afford uh, the members of the Big Ten Conference. It will add to television revenue to, you know, maintain the viability of uh, the Big Ten Conference going forward as many Power Five conferences are in a state of flux and uncertainty uh, the, the future is pretty secure for Indiana University Athletics as well as uh, the, the Big Ten Conference. Two, uh, I think it's great competition. Uh, I, I'm a sport administrator for seven sports here, um, and I've talked to each of our coaches, and you know, the baseball team's excited that there is a warm weather component to the league, that they'll have a better seat at the table uh, with NCAA tournament selections, as well as a pipeline to recruiting that will be very favorable. Our swim program, their ancient historic rival is USC. So they think that this is a great thing for, for the Big Ten Conference to have Indiana USC swim dive competitions. Uh, you know, you talking to our tennis coaches and you inform them that the alma mater of Arthur Ashe, Jimmy Connors and Stan Smith have joined the Big Ten Conference. It can seem a little bit daunting but they too have recruited very well out of Southern California and they think that this will be a boon. And I'm really excited to, you know, see uh, fall Saturdays of Indiana playing, you know, USC and UCLA on the road and in, in warm weather. And I'm also really excited to to see Indiana basketball compete against UCLA and Pauley Pavilion and Simon Scott Assembly Hall. And third, um, and, uh, People you know, sometimes uh, roll their eyes when folks in the Big Ten talk about this, but the academic component is not insignificant in the conference. And two of the greatest research institutions in the world and two extraordinarily selective institutions have joined the Big Ten Conference, uh, further buttressing its unassailable academic reputation. So uh, with all of those elements, we are very excited for, for what it means uh, for IU and the Big Ten Conference.
1: All right. I want to turn to Galen next. And Galen, from your perspective, I mean, you're, as, you, know, you've, you uh, run the IU Sports Media program, but you're certainly a big sports fan. You've been following what's going on. How's this change college athletics in general?
3: Well, I think it's more incremental now than it would have been 15, 20 years ago. And I think that's important to keep in mind is that this whole process has really been going since the early two thousands. You know, you go back to when the ACC raided the Big East and they bring Miami and Virginia Tech and Boston College in, and that set off this chain of events that's been going on to this day. Uh, you know, to some degree it's it's hard for fans to get their heads wrapped around this move, and frankly media members too, because USC and UCLA have always been a brand that seems about as far away from the Big Ten as you could possibly get. You know, California, Los Angeles schools, but from a business perspective, from a competition perspective, I think a lot of the stuff that Jeremy rattled off there demonstrates that they if they belong anywhere other than the Pac-12, it would be a conference like the Big Ten, as opposed to something like the SEC or the Big 12. And so, it's different in that it's going to take a lot of people time to get their heads wrapped around those two programs in particular, playing against Michigan's or Indiana's or Ohio State's on a regular basis. But culturally, they do fit as uh, as that as hard as that might be for people to get their heads wrapped around. They do. Uh, You know, from my perspective, I think it's really it's not necessarily good or bad, but it is the order and the direction that college sports has been headed for a while. And I think from the Indiana perspective, you would much rather be in a conference that's adding USC and UCLA at this point than a conference that's hoping that they'll be able to pick up like. Oregon State or Washington State to, to perpetuate themselves and, and get a decent TV deal. So uh, th- if you're a traditionalist, as I know Andy is, it, it can be jarring and and can feel wrong. But I do think that it is a place that a school like Indiana and in a conference like the Big Ten probably needs to get to as we head into this next phase of things.
1: Yeah. So Andy, you are a traditionalist. <laughs> we know that. Uh-huh. We, I mean, I've worked with Andy for many years at the Herald Times and um, we still sort of rue the day that there's not a single class basketball tournament <laughs> yes, in Indiana. We do. <laughs> um, so from your, your perspective as a longtime fan of, of sports and a, a, you know, a sports writer who covered sports, I mean, how do you that, feel about this? Well, you know,
4: I, I dreamed my entire adult life of watching Indiana play football in Pasadena. Now it's just a different <laughs> way it's going to happen. but. Uh, no, I, I I am a traditionalist in the sense that yeah, if I could wave a magic wand and uh, resurrect the ten member Big Ten and resurrect the Southwest Conference and all of that, I would I would do I would happily do so. But that's not the lay of the land. It's not the modern landscape of college athletics. And given the context of that, this is really a net positive. The Big Ten is now. Uh, a nationwide conference uh, from sea to shining sea. It's got, uh, consider the uh, metroplexes it, it has in terms of its media markets now. It's got New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Uh, it's, no, I mean, it's it's a net positive. From an Indiana point of view, I mean, right now, the Big Ten is uh, finishing up negotiating TV contract. It was rumored to be a $1.1 billion a year contract. Now you add the Los Angeles market to that. Uh, it's probably going to bump it up. So Indiana was uh, nominally going to receive $100 million a year in television money, which is basically double what it currently gets. Well, I've heard I've heard figures as high as $140 million a year now. And that really helps Indiana from a competitive point of view, because it reduces the percentage of the athletic budget pie that comes from gate receipts. You know, you had Ohio State. State, Michigan, one hundred ten thousand seat football stadiums had that inherent advantage, and that is going to be mitigated somewhat now because television money will be a bigger piece of the pie, and that will be distributed uh, equitably. Okay, Lori.
5: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's you know, I think all the points that have been made here, as a graduate of two Big Ten schools, and uh, Michigan being the other one, and of course the the historic relationship with uh, the Rose Bowl and all that uh, certainly resonates with me, too. I want to ask a question, though, about the, the impact on the student athletes themselves, um, which is that depending on how the, this new configured conference is kind of divided up, it is going to mean more travel time to play, uh, conference, uh, to play other members of the conference. And I just wonder how that's being accommodated with respect to student schedules.
1: Hello. I think
2: I
5: might
1: Yeah, Jeremy,
2: a, go
5: a, ahead. A Jeremy question.
2: Yeah, I think that I might be the one to, to to be able to address that. So, um, I think it's it's a valid concern. Um, <clears throat> if if we're looking at it from Indiana's perspective, uh, it might be an exaggerated concern and I'll, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Um, we have a very passionate basketball fan base and a growing passion for women's basketball here uh, at indiana but outside of basketball conference games are almost exclusively played on the weekends and if you are not traveling in the way that men's women's basketball volleyball and football travel you are largely taking long bus trips so if the baseball team for instance is playing usc on the road so they're and you would probably only have to go to California one time because if USC is your road trip, UCLA is likely gonna be coming to your place. Um, You know, that's a four hour flight, plus the hour drive from here to Indianapolis and the hour drive from wherever uh, you're playing in Los Angeles from LAX. It's always gonna be an hour no matter what. Um, that That is a long and arduous trip, but the bus trip from Penn State for the exact same road weekend would be in the order of nine, 10 hours. Uh, You know, same with, you know, playing tennis in Wisconsin. They get in motor pool vans and go to Wisconsin. Um, You know, that's a seven hour trip. It's largely the same as going to play tennis against UCLA or USC. So other than the two basketballs, the conference games are almost exclusively played on the weekends. So I don't think it's quite the hit to travel time for the existing Big 10 schools. That people necessarily think, I do think it will be a challenge, though, for our basketball teams playing there on a Tuesday night. That that flight will get back late, and that that will be a challenge for the student athletes. Yeah. Now, if you're USC and UCLA, um, it's it, it does add uh, you know an amount to it. Now, Pac-12 travel is different. The states are much larger there. It is you've gotta get on a plane to fly to Pullman, Washington if you're at UCLA for all of your sports. Uh, so they're gonna be flying everywhere anyway. However, uh, it can't be naive to think changing three time zones and flying to Rutgers is the same as flying to Colorado. Uh, so I do think it's gonna be a real challenge for UCLA and USC. I think they might go for, for all sports other than football to the travel partner format so that they can split up travel equitably and try to find, uh, you know, if you're the Big 10 and UCLA has to play Penn State on the road in basketball, can you make that one of the Christmas break games to make it easier on the student athlete? And uh, though Nebraska is not close, it is closer, and maybe those become the midweek games later on in in the schedule. So they're gonna have to schedule smart, really for the benefit of UCLA and USC. For an IU student athlete, other than maybe one basketball trip a year, I don't see it having a huge impact.
5: Yeah, thank you. That's those. That's really important to point out. And I and I suppose I mean right now we have kind of the Big Ten East and Big Ten West, uh, don't we in football yes. at least? So presumably those kinds of uh, is that what you mean by travel partners? This? Yeah.
2: Or. Purdue and Indiana travel together to California and we just go there and play USC and UCLA and whatever sport at the same time with Purdue so that you can get three full matches out of the deal. So if we fly out to California in tennis, let's say, we could play Purdue, USC and UCLA and get three conference matches out of the way in one weekend to limit, limit travel out West or West to East, if that makes sense. So we would go out there together
5: Got it. Yeah, that's great. It's worth pointing out too, that we actually recruit students from the Los Angeles area. Increasingly, there's a, a alumni group called Hollywood Hoosiers. Um, so, I mean, it's, a, it's actually an active alumni base too. So, you know, sort of thinking about the other benefits that you might receive uh, from having a, a tighter connection into that, that area, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's there too.
2: There's actually a, an interesting stat that there's more Big 10 graduates living in the state of Arizona than Pac-12 graduates so uh i think it will be an enormous opportunity to connect with fans and alumni when we go out west uh even if they're driving down from san francisco or up from san diego or over from phoenix and las vegas i i think there'll be some happy hoosier fans when uh when, uh, you know, our women's basketball team or our baseball team or football team head out west. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I was out at the College Cup when IU played in Santa Barbara in 2018. And, you know, the other schools of Maryland and Michigan State and so forth, you know, they had like maybe 20, 30 fans there. IU had a, a, a canopy to hold the the pregame alumni festivity. There's a lot of folks out there. I know in my sports media program, a lot of our broadcasters are coming out of L.A. and San Diego. Now, they're all thrilled about this. I'm like, they didn't have to leave home after all too much.
4: Uh, Jeremy dropped the Big Ten East moniker there, and, and that's, that's another you know, small positive, I think one could say, regarding Indiana football. That will go away. The, 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 we won't see the same kind of conference divisions. I know that... Some fans have chafed over the years at the seeming unbalance between the Big Ten East and the Big Ten West, and those divisions are gonna go uh, go by the wayside. And, you know, obviously the football schedule is still gonna be very competitive and and, and very difficult at times, but it isn't gonna be centered around the, you know, Play in Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, and Michigan State, such uh, every year for Indiana. So
1: we're talking about college football and basketball, just college conference expansion on noon edition today and we're going to get into name image and likeness also. We have three guests, Galen Clavio, the director of IU Sports Media Program, Jeremy Gray, senior as- Associate Athletic director for IU and Andy Graham, former sports writer and reporter for The Herald Times. I'm Bob Salzberg, and Lori McRobbie is also on the show as a co-host. If you have questions or comments, you can call us at 812-855-0811, toll free at 285-9348. You can also send us your questions to news at org. Or on Twitter, you can follow us at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions there. We do have a question that came in on the phone from Owen, and Owen asks specifically how um, how this is going to affect women's sports, and he he wants to talk about both the conference realignment and NIL. Uh,
2: if I if I can take the, the 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 first swing at, at the at the two parter there. Um, you look at UCLA and USC and uh, they are historically as strong if not stronger in their women's programs than than their men's this yep. this these are the alma maters of Jackie Joyner Kersey and Cheryl Miller, Miller and Lisa Leslie they have an enormous Allison Felix the great you know track and field runner um, they've got an enormous legacy in those sports. Um, and I, I think it'll be a great opportunity for our, our, our uh, student athletes in women's sports to compete against them. Um, so I, th- I think that'll be very positive. NIL, um, they actually did a study on the most marketable student athletes in all of intercollegiate athletics. And my, my math could be a little fuzzy on this, but it's largely correct three quarters of them were women student athletes. Um, oftentimes the marketability is tied uh, to uh, their social media presence. And there are some you know, student athletes in women's sports who have enormous followings. I think you can use a germane example from Indiana. Lily King wins the Olympic gold medal in 2016 as a freshman in college. She would have probably been a millionaire student athlete um, and been able to you know monetize her name image and likeness as a student athlete and made a beyond comfortable living here katie ledecky very much the same while swimming at stanford i think of tyra bus who had an enormous social media following and a lot of presence i would think a lot of local advertisers would have loved to have used tyra bus to market their products businesses restaurants and stores uh, we have seen ali patberg sign very large uh NIL deals, we've actually got a, an announcement that'll be coming up with a softball player that frankly will blow people's minds. So I think this is a, a real boon uh, to, to women student athletes. And you, you also look at it, um, as great as Trace Jackson Davis is, the top of the heap in his sport is, is LeBron James. Uh, as great as Tevin Coleman was as a student athlete here it's hard to compete against Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady. Same with the baseball players and Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. But, uh, you know, Lily King was the top swimmer in the world while she was a student athlete in college. And I think, uh, you know, if you're Speedo or a company like that, college might be the way to go to, uh, to you know, pay athletes to, to, to market your products and services.
3: I think something that Andy said earlier is another important point with these particular moves is that the Big Ten has really established itself as the national college sports brand with this move. And, you know, whether or not they add Notre Dame, if they add Notre Dame, it's like full on. Mm -hmm. But even if they don't add Notre Dame, you've got three of the four time zones covered and you've got three of the top – the three top media markets covered. And I think from an NIL perspective, there's a lot of possibilities – if you're going to leverage social media as an athlete, if you're going to put yourself in a position where you're marketable beyond just your sport, now you've got a much broader audience who's going to have a chance to hear your name and have a chance to tie what you're doing to something that might be interested to them. And so, look, I think NIL, it's been a little over a year since the, the breaks came off that and we started going down the path. And I think anybody who's been watching this space will tell you it hasn't quite evolved the way that people thought it would originally. But... The way that it's evolving, I think there is a burgeoning marketplace specifically for women's athletes because of what Jeremy just said, and that this is essentially these are essentially the professional leagues or close to them. Uh, You know, you've you've got a much smaller percentage of professional athletes playing well-known professional sports on the women's side, which means if you're a college uh, women's athlete, you've got a real opportunity to be seen as the best of what you do, and that comes across on the NIL side as well.
1: And Andy, you've seen such a change in women's athletics and the way it's been covered since you started in the business. Right?
4: Yeah, oh, it's I mean, it's it's been really uh, really heartwarming and, and quite edifying to see. Uh, I remember I was back in high school and uh, we had a we had a good basketball team, no thanks to me. But we were watching a girl named Connie Norris uh, do a crossover dribble and split two defenders and do a finger roll. For about for a bucket, just playing intramural ball, and Jim Farmer and I looked at each other. I don't know. Could you do that? I don't know. And and we we, we regretted. We talked about how how much how it was a shame that people couldn't see Connie play. Mm-hmm. You know, and and. Not too long after that, you know girls' varsity sports started in high school this This really ages me, i realize <laughs> but but uh um, no, I mean that 's been exceptionally gratifying uh, i i i I confess to be a, um, a feminist uh, from way back and for me there 's been few uh I don't know, it was probably the most gratifying development in athletics in my professional life was watching the Expansion of of women's athletics and 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 a, a more level playing field. It's not level, but it's 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 improved. And uh, obviously, you know, when you're talking Title IX, I had the privilege to talk to Birch Bay about that uh, and talk about his sponsorship of that legislation and whatnot. And uh, he was proud of it, and he should have been. And I think that um, you know, it's an ongoing. It's still an ongoing project. But uh, yeah, I mean, I can remember. Um, uh, being at the Herald Times, and all of a sudden we had uh, a lot of girls' teams, a lot of women's sports to cover, and uh, of course we had our our staff doubled to handle that. but, I'm sorry, that's, that was a bad joke, but, <laughs> but yeah, no. I was trying to, trying to understand that. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, no, and and so yeah, that's been that's been something that has meant a lot to me personally. So.
1: Lori, we're going to do a show on Title IX specifically. That's that's been in right. our plans for uh, since really since you got started here. So hopefully we'll be able to talk more about that.
5: Yeah, time yeah. Since we, as we as we know uh, and and uh, yeah. Andy, thank you for your your comments here. I, I we, you're dating me too because I uh, I go back probably as far as you do and uh, was just out of high school when Title IX uh, was passed, became the law of the land. Uh, and, of course, originally was it, it was really about equality in education. Mm-hmm. Uh, the athletic um, equalization work really came on after that. And uh, you know important to recognize, I think uh, um, Jeremy, you mentioned the the academic uh, nature of of these alliances, the schools that are coming in being academically strong, is, is by is not at all insignificant and it's a very important part of what's happening here because in fact there are alliances on the academic side that happen across the Big Ten uh, the provosts, the, the research officers, um, not to mention the president so they typically they are really responsible for, for managing the conference um, but there's a lot of uh, course coursework sharing, uh, you know uh, degrees that are perhaps undersubscribed at one institution can take advantage of, uh, those uh, 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 enrollments at other institutions. Now that we have a better, better online environment for teaching and so forth, so I think the the it's interesting to see how these threads come together when we think about uh, what's happened with college athletics and especially for women being part of this. And uh, as I say, the academic piece is 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 very important part of it as well. Uh, so uh, lots of lots of good things to celebrate here. And hopefully we will get our show to talk uh, more deeply about how how Title IX, I'm sure we will, uh, uh, later this year to talk about uh, what Title IX has meant um, to people here in Indiana.
1: Before we get a little deeper into NIL, I want to follow up again on this conference thing. Galen... Where's this going to end? I mean, we have the Power Power Five conferences, right? Well, not we really. No, we're going to have Power, no, have just have power, power Two now? So, or,
3: I think it's important to keep in mind a couple of things, which is, first of all, what's driving a lot of this, is, as Andy talked about earlier, overarching-wise, obviously all the things we've talked about are important, but what drives it is revenue. And it's revenue based upon television inventory. because. You know the era we're in right now is not like 25, 30 years ago when there was a finite amount of television space. You know there were only so many primetime slots. There were only so many games that you could put on in a given week. And now you know, you've got the Big Ten's got its own network, the SEC's got its own network. You've got streaming services like Peacock, which is NBC's network uh, streaming service, or ESPN Plus. They got to have inventory. They got to have things to put on, and they've got to have reasons to compel people to subscribe to those things. And sports, live sports, lot games, and game broadcasts are like one of the very few bankable things that you have in media right now. And you know,' there's only, that's why the NFL makes the billions of dollars that it makes every year is because there aren't that many games, which makes them incredibly valuable because people tune in. So where it ends, a lot of it comes down to, you know where do market conditions allow for a conference to make more money with a television partner? And right now, you know the Big Ten's had a, a now long-standing relationship with Fox Sports. Fox Sports owns, you know, half or more, maybe now, of the Big Ten network and is the primary partner for the conference in terms of you know it's it's Big Ten teams playing largely in the the main noon slot on Saturdays. Uh, you know the SEC is aligned with ESPN. And so you're seeing these networks through a variety of contracts trying to put themselves in a position where they have the best inventory to put in front of people. Uh, I think the big question from now is going to be, now that USC and UCLA are gone, does the Pac-12 stick around? Are they able to have a financial package that makes sense given television revenue, or do those teams end up going and merging with, say, the Big 12? What happens with Notre Dame? Notre Dame, there was a story that came out last week about how they've said, well, we'll stay independent if NBC can guarantee us $75 million a year, which would be about double uh, or maybe triple. more than triple, triple what they're making right now. And they may get it. I don't. I doubt that they will, but it's, it's not completely out of their own possibility. So at this point... As we've had for the last 20 years, it's just about repositioning and people trying to make sure that they're not left behind, like the ACC was, where they signed essentially a 20-year-long contract with ESPN that locked them into a rate that the Big Ten is about to quintuple with their new television deal.
4: I wanted to pick up on something Lori said, and also Jeremy uh, alluded to it, as the quality of school academically and research, uh, in terms of research, that has been added to the Big Ten here, uh, that's not insignificant. And to me, it it emphasizes the belief, or it it reinforces the belief that I have that even though amateurism is a myth, and has been for a long time, student-athlete, that phrase is not a myth it's important and and people want to preserve that. I think the Big Ten is sending signals that it very much wants to preserve that. Indiana University right now graduates 92% of its athletes. That's, that's significantly higher than the general student population graduation rate. It's a big deal. There's over 10,000 student athletes every year in the Big Ten. And so uh, that component is one of the things that makes college athletics really valuable to society, frankly. And I think that that uh, I, I like the Big Ten adding USC and UCLA. I, I like what that signals in that regard, too. And let's just be frank here. I mean, uh, when you look at the uh, academic standing, you know, when you talk about the SEC versus the Big Ten in football. All right. When we look at the academic gulf between those conferences. And, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to, I'm just going to say that in a general sense. Obviously, there are outstanding schools in the Southeastern Conference. You know, But I, I think that what you're seeing now, I mean, the Big Ten is, is—is yeah, they're trying to entice Notre Dame, another outstanding school. I'm sure they're looking at Stanford, and they're, they're thinking about bringing in the Bay Area. You know, They, they might want to have an additional presence on the West Coast. They're looking at North Carolina. Now, the ACC schools, it's a bit different. They've got uh, television packs, GUCA running until 2034. There's a $50 million buyout, I think, for ACC schools to leave the conference. It's a significant hurdle. But uh, you know the SEC is going to be looking there. The SEC is going to be looking at Clemson. They're going to be looking at Florida State. They're going to be looking at Miami. They're going to be looking at football schools for the ACC to bring in to possibly get to twenty teams. So when you're extrapolating a bit in terms of the schools the Big Ten is considering, once again the academic standards are extremely high, and I think that's uh, that's something worth noting.
1: Is the NCA still relevant?
4: Well,
3: kind of. But I think, look, we're seeing some news this week where the NCAA is further opening up player movement Mm -hmm. and looks poised to allow players to transfer multiple times uh, in a career and, and just have that be the normal order of business. I think the NCAA has been caught not evolving with the times, and that's been the case for a while. For a long time, it didn't matter too much because there were more benefits to being affiliated with the NCAA and letting them set the rules. And now I think you're seeing a situation where the genie's out of the bottle, whether it's with NIL, whether it's with player movement. Uh, A lot of the things that critics of college sports have pointed out as hypocrisies related to how the enterprise has been run over the course of the last several decades, a lot of those things are unraveling. So I think it's still relevant in as much as it's still what people associate college sports with. Uh, But I think the governance model, if it's going to survive, is going to have to evolve and change to match the current marketplace.
4: Yeah, my supposition is that big time college football will divorce itself from the NCAA at some point. Uh, The NCAA will still run the men's basketball tournament, for example, and and run a lot of the other sports. But I I see this as being eventually, Uh, and they'll make their the big time college football will make its own NIL rules and they'll make their own. Transfer rules. I think that's that's coming. That right now the NCAA has a you know has a has a committee set for transformation committee. I think is what they call it. And, and I'm sure they'll have a lot of things come out. But the NCAA was asleep at the switch. I mean, they, they could have added uh, a major cash stipend, let's say, to to scholarships. Like 25 years ago. I mean, if they'd been wise, they would have, they would have done that. And I think that would have, for, you, you have forced you, you could have forestalled uh, the kind of sort of chaotic situation and the kind of Wild West situation we're seeing with the NIL stuff right now. Uh, but the NCAA, uh, unfortunately, didn't have that kind of prescience in its in its leadership.
1: Before I go to to Lori, I want to see if Jeremy has any thoughts about: Is the Big Ten going to divorce itself from the uh, NCAA in football? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was I, I thought about maybe you know picking up lunch while this question was being asked so that I could avoid the question. <laughs> uh, no. Um, I will say I found out about the addition of USC and UCLA, uh, you know, 30 hours in advance of it actually happening. So I might be one of the last internal people to know. Um, things have changed at an accelerated rate over the last 15 years. Uh, really, from the moment that the Big Ten Network was started, mm-hmm. that that feels like a hugely important moment in the history of intercollegiate athletics Uh, as other networks soon followed the big 10 quickly became a stable and lucrative place um you know conference expansion followed from there Uh, a lot of student athlete you know rights nil so things are changing so quickly Uh, you know you know candidly i wouldn't be surprised by by any of it um i i do think that the ncaa uh does the women's basketball tournament during the pandemic notwithstanding, uh, they do a a pretty good job running championships. And I think it's important to note too, that the NCAA uh, is the universities themselves. Uh, We act like it's this entirely separate organization, not tethered to the universities themselves, but they are are the members, they're the body, they're the ones that actually elect the leaders. Um, and, you know, we get votes on policies and, and rules as as they change. Um, so I do think that there will be a place for for the NCAA going forward, uh, you know, largely for, for, for the reasons uh, that I mentioned. But, you know, uh, if it ends up being two major conferences in Notre Dame, you know, uh, I could see it potentially in, in future years being run as kind of a separate entity. but. You know, I haven't been. You know, I've stopped being surprised by, by things a long time ago.
4: Yeah, I'm not saying it's going to happen right away, I, yeah. but I, I do see that as as. Uh, you know, and once again, it's just it's just an opinion. Looking at the overall lay of the land, but I, I, you know, money talks, and I think that this is going to be a, you know, an eventuality in my opinion. Lori.
5: Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it can happen quickly. I want to ask a, a question. You know, we, we have, what, something, uh, something under a 1,000 varsity athletes at IU. It probably compares um, to, to other Big Ten institutions. But I'm wondering about intramural sports. Um, obviously, they don't follow the same, I don't think, the same kinds of schedules and so forth. Um, but, but even the, the non-varsity sports uh, do tend to play other non-varsity Teams at other institutions in the conference. You mean like clubs, so, club
4: sports, right. Mm-hmm.
5: Club sports, thank yeah. you. Club yeah. sports. Has what what are the implications there? If any. I don't
2: I don't, I don't think it changes the reality for, for for those sports. I do think the era of schools adding sports is probably over. Um that uh, if anything we have seen in recent years, a lot, a lot of this was influenced by the pandemic, that you know, schools like Iowa, Michigan State, uh, and Minnesota have actually reduced sports. Um, that is actually a, a competitive imbalance thing between the Big 10 and the SEC. Uh, Ohio State, I believe, has 36 sports and Texas has 17. So even though their budgets are the same, they are stretched a, a, a little bit thinner. My guess is going forward, especially at schools that are not in what would be categorized as the power two, you could actually see a further flowering of the club sport experiences at, at, at programs that used to carry them as varsity sports programs. That would be, that would be something that I, w- I would predict going forward.
5: Yeah, interesting. And another question about, again, this is, could, there could be no impact or we won't see any impact for a while on recruiting. Um, that is, especially looking at basketball and, and uh, well, basketball in particular, of course, is often they're tracking kids when they're still at elementary school if they're showing promise. Um, is there are, are coaches now thinking about where they recruit and how they recruit yeah. differently?
3: I mean, people... People are always shocked at how much of America's food is grown in California, uh, like all different kinds, and it's kind of that way with athletes yeah, too. I mean, yeah. the the uh, I was actually just out in uh, Hermosa Beach for vacation this summer, and you know, you you can't walk. Thirty feet without tripping over a volleyball game happening on the beach. Um, there's so many athletes in so many sports, both you know football and basketball, but also sports like soccer, volleyball, water polo. I mean, you know, Indiana's in a conference where what nine tenths of the the conference is in California already. So I think for, for the Big Ten schools, for Indiana in particular, this is uh, I think it broadens your recruiting base considerably, right where you would want it. It's not like you're adding. You know the state of Wyoming uh, you know you're, you're adding probably the highest density of college ready or almost college ready athletes that you're gonna find
4: yeah that's another reason why I think the Big Ten might look at bringing in Stanford and Cal as well just sort of lock down the whole state and uh, and um, so yeah but yeah there, there's no question that you're talking baseball softball all these sports you know swimming water polo whatever it's you've got a uh, you know, people talked about the SEC advantage in terms of recruiting base down south. For example, the amount of football players that people can get out of Florida and Georgia and places like that. And it's absolutely true. It's very valid. it's a valid point. Well, this once again levels the playing field a little bit in regard to the Big Ten.
1: On the issue of name, image, and likeness, uh, we did a show. Uh, Galen, you were on, Jeremy was on, you guys were on the committee that that helped get IU ready for the the whole new name image and, and likeness uh, era has it worked out the way that you had expected? It seems to me there are some pretty significant flaws in the system.
3: Well, <laughs> you know, I guess from my perspective, and I'd I'd love to hear Jeremy's on this. I don't I don't see them as flaws because I've never been locked into this idea that. Uh, being a college athlete should preclude you from earning money on on you know the the virtues of being a college athlete, and so I think when NIL first opened up, I certainly was looking at it and saying, well, most of this is going to be smaller scale sponsorships that they're, you're signing outside of your duties as an athlete, and you're certainly seeing some of that, and I think we're going to continue to see that market grow. I don't think what most people foresaw was these collectives forming, which are essentially paying athletes for being athletes at the schools, even if they're not specifically saying that. I don't have a philosophical problem with it. I know other people do. But to me, it's taken an economy that already existed and was largely underground and has forced it above ground and also brought additional people into it. Now, I think the end result of that is going to be essentially what we already had, because you know, I, I, I think you're naive if you thought that there weren't college athletes in a lot of these high-profile sports that weren't already getting money, uh, you know, through you know means that were not according to the rules. Now it's just a bit more out in the open. This is where I think the big question about the NCAA maintaining relevance is going to be fascinating because people forget the NCAA, as we know it, became what it is because it enforced rules that the schools had set. And prior to about 1950, that wasn't happening. And the NCAA's entire, you know, reason for existence has been enforcing rules and organizing championships. Well, they're gonna—they've been making noise about enforcing the rules about no pay for play and, and and getting all these things, you know, out of the game and going after like these collectives at places like Miami. I think if they try that, they're gonna find it really hard in court at this point to justify it. And so. Yes, it's different than what we thought when we had those talks last year, but I think this is the natural evolution of a market that existed and is now in a much freer spot.
4: If you look at the Supreme Court decision, I mean Judge Kavanaugh basically laid out the path forward in that regard. And yeah, as I, I used the phrase "wild west" earlier, it really kind of is right now. Mm-hmm. But I think over time it'll smooth out, and and whether it's the NCAA regulating it or you know the the the. Power to football uh, people regulating whatever it is they'll they'll figure out a way to handle it and uh, uh, yeah I mean it's a, it's another way to give the athletes a bigger piece of the pie which should have happened as I said a long time ago I mean, the NCAA should have been been preemptive in that regard
1: well I, you know I'm kind of a traditionalist when it comes to this stuff too and, mm-hmm. and Jeremy I want to ask you first Lori I'd love to hear your opinion on this too but IU has been considered maybe I'm a naive IU fan. You know, one of the good guys doesn't cheat, doesn't pay athletes um, under you the know, table. Right. Under the table, yeah. And, and I mean, there, there. You know, we've had our little instances, Kelvin Sampson being one, but um, but IU has generally been considered a place where uh, we play by the rules, we have high integrity, and now you know these collectives are coming in, and, and you know, and and it seems like the rules have change so that a collective and a university can say or an university community can say we're going to guarantee you know a hundred athletes or a thousand athletes are going to make x amount of money and we're going to raise that money and we're going to make sure that you And, and i would think that would change the whole recruiting dynamic that people are looking at where they can make the most money to play jeremy what kind of controls can iu put over something like that or does it want to
2: Yes, we do want to. So we want to maintain our culture of compliance that you spoke of. And of course there have been some bumps in the road on that, but I think largely speaking, historically over time, we have had a culture of compliance here. Um, And and I I will say this about my former boss uh, and my current one, both Fred Glass and Scott Dolson have, I've never put my head to pillow worried about whether or not we were Doing something you know grossly unethical in order to induce student athletes to come to Indiana. So we've we've had a culture of compliance here for for a long time. Um, I would say this probably the, the the biggest difference from what I thought it would be to what it is. I thought it would be individual actors paying the athletes in this way, not collectives. The collectives are more systematized. We do a lot of education, um, you know, with our student athletes on you know. You have to you have to perform a service in order to get the money, and there is no pay for play, and it cannot be utilized as an inducement. Those are basically the three rules that you have to that that you have to have to follow. I feel that um, you know, and actually, you know, Fred Glass is actually involved in one of the collectives. I feel that the collectives, as it pertains to IU, are following the spirit of those rules. Um, to Galen's point, the ones that are not. And are you know maybe f- playing fast and loose with the three remaining rules? I bet if you crumb trail to before the NIL times, those are the people who are paying the uh the athletes under the table anyway. Yeah. So I think that the advantages and disadvantages of being in Indiana are largely the same as what they were uh before. I will say this uh, what is meaningful money to uh you know a professional adult? is different than what is meaningful money to a student-athlete. So a student-athlete getting a $2,000 a year NIL deal is a huge deal. And, um, you know, we have in the order of 200-plus student-athletes who have signed an NIL deal of some sort. Um, and that has, that has impacted their lives in positive ways. And we have some that are doing very well uh, in NIL. Uh, but those that uh, are inducing athletes with NIL money probably were inducing athletes with Thousand dollar handshakes before.
1: What kind of deals are our student athletes signing? Can you give an example or two?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know they come in they come in a variety. So um, I'll go with what the purely intended NIL deals are first. So that we just uh, had our athletes given the opportunity to sign a licensing agreement with a group called Campus Inc where they can sell their own jerseys and keep a huge percentage of the profits from those jerseys. That's truly selling their name, image, and likeness on a jersey. So a lot of students have opted in on that. And so uh, I don't know, I'm just gonna give a for instance of somebody from a long time ago, if you, if Calbert Chaney was an athlete here and there were Calbert Chaney Campusing jerseys, Calvert Chaney would get a huge percentage of the profit off of that shirt. And so a lot of student athletes have signed up for that. Uh, there have been appearance fees. Um, you know, uh, I think Miller Cop signed autographs at Columbus Carpet Company, made some money. Um, we've had student athletes operate their camps and lessons. Think about this, you know, one of the world's great under 22 year old violinists can teach violin lessons to kids here in town, but prior to July of last year, a baseball player could not give pitching lessons to a local little league player. Mm-hmm. Those rules have changed. So they've they've started their own camps and clinics and lessons programs. and. You know, promoting the fact that they're an IU student athlete doing it. Um, you know, uh, so so those those are, are are different. And then the collectives have uh, you know signed student athletes to do things. There's one called Hoosiers for Good, where uh, they sign NIL deals and uh, you know promote local, regional, and national charities. Uh, there's another one called the Hoosier Hysterics Collective. Um, that's a little bit different but they they promote uh, you know promote businesses through that collective uh, but I will say this they do a great job of performing a service for their Nil money uh, it's not just a blank check for not showing up to something they at least have to perform some sort of service and we have athletes that have I've kind of run the
4: gamut that way. Hey, Jeremy, I wanted to ask a question. That what isn't it at least ostensibly true that, for example, if an athlete is a spokesperson for a uh, auto dealer selling cars, that the auto dealer isn't supposed to compensate the athlete outside of what normal spokespeople would get for for advertising those cars? Is there any that, sort of regulation like that?
2: that was the original discussion and conversation. And this is probably to Bob's point in that there is this idea of fair market value. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I would say that a libertarian attitude toward fair market value (laughs) has been adopted. And, uh, and, and frankly, it is hard to determine, you know, is fair market value what someone's willing to pay you to show up at a car dealership Mm -hmm. or what you are in your sport compared to the top person in your sport. And um, I think that that is the gray area uh, that people are operating in, and I think there's a continuum. And clearly, Galen's on one side on how much (laughs) you you care about that gray area.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Galen, no, he's right. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, to me, I think that everybody freaks out first about the idea that athletes are getting paid. Period. And second oh, wow, how much? But there is a market value. And I think it'll correct itself over time. Right now, nobody knows what the actual market value is. Um, But but I also think that this just illustrates at the highest levels of college sport that these are, they have the same level of popularity and in many cases higher ratings than most professional sports around the world. Like we're used to the big professional sports, NFL, NBA, so forth here. You look at the revenue-generated by just the SEC and it is higher than a lot of total revenue from like a soccer league in Portugal or Russia. So the money is there and I do think that we're going to figure out what those actual values are as we go along but I'm not like freaked out about it at this point.
4: And and people should understand athletes have been well compensated over time. I mean, if you're a if You're an out of state athlete, which most of them are now let's say you're a linebacker from Ohio come play football at in Indiana, take your red shirt you're here for five years. that's a quarter of a million dollars direct monetary value from the university to you just in terms of tuition. you had room and board, you had free medical free tutoring, free counseling, all the other stuff that comes with it. plus you know if you're a student athlete here, you know you got a better than ninety percent chance to earn your degree, which means as opposed to uh, somebody with a high school diploma who earns $1.2 million over the course of their professional life, on average, you will earn $2.8 million. So you have exponential growth. So athletes have been well compensated. This is a different version. I think it allows teams to play by the rules, schools to play by the rules, to be a little bit more competitive with those who have paid under the table all, the, all these years.
1: All right. We're out of time. It's been a, a great, fast-moving fast conversation today. And I want to thank... Uh, our guests, Galen Clavio, Jeremy Gray, and Andy Graham for being here with us on the show. And of course, I wanna thank my co-host, Lori McRobbie, and also our producers, uh, Nathan Moore, Benta Boutier, and Kathy Knapp, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zalzberg. Thanks for listening.
0: Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow, more at BloomHF.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients. From initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Support for WFIU comes from our sustainers and from. Crazy Horse Tavern on Kirkwood, featuring daily lunch and dinner menu, weekend brunch, and full bar with whiskey and tequila tasting dinners. Open seven days a week and family-friendly before 9 p.m. More at CrazyHorseIndiana.com.